Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 176 of the coronavirus crisis. And tonight, a new warning about school in the fall. A warning for parents and the economy. Are schools really ready for kids to return? By next week, we'll be able to order from the table. Plus, New York's grand reopening, phase two. Another big knock on sports as more players on more teams test positive for the virus. And meet a top virus detective trying desperately to alert anyone who's come near a carrier. This CNBC special report starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. It is good to have you with us on this Monday night. We begin with those new fears about the fall and what the growing number of outbreaks could mean for the school year. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former head of the FDA, now a CNBC contributor, raising those concerns tonight. And he is with us once again. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to be back with you tonight. These concerns come because of the rising number of cases we're seeing in places like Florida and Texas. Right. I think we absolutely should make an attempt to open public schools in the fall. And we were headed in that direction. I've been talking to a lot of school districts that are starting to make plans for how to safely do that, how to de-densify classrooms, how to protect teachers, how to keep students grouped into cohorts so you don't have large groups of students intermingling so that you can isolate students in case there is an introduction into the classroom of infection. But when you look at the southern states and the southeast right now, where you see these large outbreaks underway, and really some states that are tipping into what we would fashion as an epidemic, it's going to be very hard to open public schools against this backdrop. So I think a lot of the focus right now of our discussion is on maintaining the economy, keeping businesses open. And we seem to have come to the resolution that we can maintain business and keep businesses open, even against the backdrop of a lot of infection right now and the infection that we have But the decision to open schools is a much different decision, and the threshold is much lower. And I fear that if we continue to have this persistent level of infection that we're seeing in in the south and the southeast right now, it's going to be very hard for local school districts to make decisions to open. And if we can't open schools in the fall, that's going to encumber our ability to really get back to robust economic activity because parents don't go back to work until their kids go back to school. This is coming as we're seeing infections in places like Florida affect younger people. And the fact of the matter is, Dr. Gottlieb, we don't really know the effects of the coronavirus on the youngest, do we? Because they were pulled out of school and they were kept largely at home. That's right. And hospitalization rates are going up across the board, but more 20 and 30 and 40 year olds are now finding their way into the hospital because infection rates are rising in that community. And that suggests two things. Number one, it suggests that there's probably a lot of 20 and 30 year olds who have coronavirus because we know a much smaller percentage of them are likely to get sick enough to require hospitalization. But what it also starts to tell us is that they are getting sick enough to require hospitalization. I think that there was previously a belief that, you know, if you were 20 or 30, you were somewhat impervious to this. Now we see rising hospitalization rates among that age cohort. As far as younger kids are concerned, in every country where this became epidemic, the first thing that those nations did was close the schools. And we don't have good data on this, but it's probably the case that parents with school-aged children adhered more strictly to the stay-at-home orders and the social distancing. So young kids were largely kept in isolation away from situations where they would have contracted the virus. 
if, if only because schools were closed very early in the setting of these epidemics. So we really haven't seen the infection um, have the opportunity to infect that community, to infect young children because they were protected from the virus in the same way that older people now are protecting themselves from the virus and a much lower rate of infection is occurring among older individuals in the country. And so we don't really know how this virus is going to behave once it gets into different cohorts that have been largely unaffected to date. If you were advising the governors of Texas and Florida tonight, Dr. Gottlieb, what would your advice be about dealing with this epidemic right now? Well, they're really at a critical point right now because you don't know where they are in, in the scope of their community spread and their epidemic. They could very easily tip over into what we could call exponential growth, where they, the cases start going up very rapidly, and this becomes much more deep-seated in the community. There are signs that that may be happening um, already. And so what they need to do right now, first of all, universal masking is the simplest thing we can do. It's, it's effective. It's not wildly effective, but it's really the, the simplest thing we can do that's not intrusive, short of closing businesses. The other thing they need to do is very good testing and tracing to find out what are the sources of spread. There seems to be some indictment right now of the bars in Texas and Florida, but we don't have really good evidence that the bars are the source of spread. We think they are because we know they're indoor congregate settings, they're high-risk settings, and they're not adhering to social distancing um, rules that are in place in those states right now. So there's a belief that those are the sources of spread, but we don't know that. There might be other things causing the spread at the community level that we need to identify, and that's where good tracing comes into play. Texas and Florida haven't invested in the tracking and tracing. If you look at an overlay of the 50 states and who's doing a really good job, Texas and Florida aren't the worst, but they're certainly not the best, and they're certainly below the, 50, the median level in terms of the number of tracers, tr number of public health workers that they have doing this tracking and tracing. This doesn't trend well for the fall, it, it sounds like. Larry Kudlow, the president's top economic advisor, Dr. Gottlieb was on this network this morning on Squawk Box, a program that you're frequently on, and said that a second wave, quote, isn't coming. Your reaction to that? Well, look, it's a high, we, a second wave isn't coming because we're, we're not going to get out of the first wave. Um, it's a lot of infection to be taking into the summer. We shouldn't be where we are in June. We're actually going up in terms of the number of cases. And it's not just that we're testing more. We are testing more. And we're one of the best in the world in terms of testing per capita right now. There's only a handful of European nations that are better than us. But the positivity rate's also going up. It's very clear that there's community spread underway in the, in the south, in the southeast. There are rising case levels at the community. And short of shutting down um, business activity, which we don't want to do and I don't think we're going to do, it's going to be very hard to get a handle on this now that that spread's underway. And so these governors need to intervene you know, as much as they can right now to try to isolate the source of the spread and take targeted actions. Because if we continue to see this spread into July and August, and remember in these states, people are now going inside to get air conditioning. So they're not getting the benefit of the warm weather where people are going outside. They're not going inside. If we take this level of infection all the way through July and August, it's going to be very hard to see a resumption of really robust activity in the fall. And the schools are really the linchpin here. If we can't reopen the public schools in the fall, that's going to be a very big drag on our ability to get back to more normal activity. To be clear, Mr. Kudlow's point was that there's not going to be a second wave because we're dealing with the first wave in such a, a positive way. You take issue with that. You're saying we're not going to have a second wave because we're never going to get rid of the first wave. Well, a second wave implies that we're going to see we've sort of extinguished the infection and come all the way down like European nations have, like Asian nations have, and then you're going to see a second spike. 
Um, we're now we've sort of plateaued at 20,000 cases a day. Now we're going back up to 30,000 cases a day. We might be heading towards 40,000 cases a day into next week. Um, and so if we see a sort of build on that, that's not a true second wave. We never really um, were able to get through the first wave of this epidemic. It's been a persistent burn, if you will, of infection all the way through. If you look at the chart of the European nations and Asian nations relative to us, they, they went up their epidemic curve, but then they came all the way down. We kind of went up and then we plateaued all the way across. And now we're going up again off of that. Again, we're diagnosing more. So before the peak of this epidemic, we were probably diagnosing somewhere between 1 in 10 and 1 in 20 infections. Probably now we're diagnosing 1 in 8 infections. So we're doing a much better job turning over cases, but we still have cases building. And that's evidenced by the rising positivity rate in Florida, Arizona, Texas, um, Arizona is now almost 20% positive cases. California as well. Arkansas, Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina. Right now, 30 states have a reproduction number above one, which means their epidemic's expanding on RT.Live. Do you see a scenario in which these states which have reopened are going to be forced to shut down again, even as Governor Abbott of Texas tonight calls that the last option? Yeah, I think it is the last option. Um, I think it's going to I think things are going to have to get a lot worse before they do. Hopefully we don't get there. I think there's an opportunity to to take aggressive actions now, targeted actions um, that foreclose the the need to shut down the economy. But what's going to force their hand ultimately is what happens to the healthcare system. States like Florida and Texas have a lot of reserve capacity. But if you look at if you look at California, there's thirty seven hundred people currently hospitalized, almost twelve hundred in the ICU. Um, Florida is adding one hundred and fifty cases a day to their hospitals. Um, Texas right now hit an all time high of cases that are being admitted to their hospitals right now. Um, Three hundred cases admitted just in the last day. So you're seeing the hospitals start to get pressed. And I think when when the hospitals start to get pressed and they get closer to capacity, and the doctors start putting pressure on, on um, local officials, governors, mayors. That's when you can see things start to tip over. We're not there yet in most states. I think states like Arizona are a little closer right now. They're about you know, 80 to 85 percent full of those hospitals, the ICU beds and general admission beds. Um, and then you have to worry about states like the reason you worry about states like Alabama and Arkansas and South Carolina. They have fewer cases, but they're building quickly. And they don't have as much capacity in their healthcare systems to really absorb that. You stay with me if you would, Dr. Gottlieb. I'll be back to you in a moment. Let's go closer to home now as New York City begins its broadest reopening phase yet with outdoor dining, playgrounds and barbershops back up and running today. Contessa Brewer live with us tonight from Manhattan. Contessa. Hi there, Scott. Yeah, thousands of New York City restaurants have been given the go ahead for outdoor dining. And those who don't have patios are just simply blocking off parking spaces, building plywood boxes so that diners have some social distancing. Hair salons saw phones ringing off the hook now that they can welcome customers back. Phase two means offices can begin bringing back workers. Some are asking for volunteers to come back. Goldman Sachs is beginning the return. J.P. Morgan Chase starting with some of its traders. And we saw today some store shopping. Macy's Herald Square threw its doors open today. This is a real turning point for a city with more than 21,000 deaths and a quarter million cases. But some business owners say the pandemic will change the way they do business globally. It's all about social distancing, of course, gloves, masks, the safety of our staff, safety of our customer. We'll not give menus anymore. 
We have QR codes that you can actually, you know, download the menu. Like this. Right here on the table. And then you will see the, you can order the, from the menu. Jean Georges there explaining how the new normal. This is all part of getting the Big Apple's big economic engine revving once again. But around the country, states and cities that began reopening more than a month ago, as you were talking about with Dr. Gottlieb Scott, have seen worrisome spikes in cases. Nevada, Texas, Florida, Arizona. They all saw a record number of new daily cases in the past week. And New York leaders will scrutinize these case counts. They promise they will reverse course if the trend turns. For now, though, social distancing, serious sanitizing, and these masks are part of big city culture. Scott? Contestant, you have a restaurant right over your shoulder. In fact, it looks fairly crowded. The tables outside are full and looks like people are perhaps waiting to either get a seat or take a food to go. That's right. There has been a big outpouring of demand in this neighborhood and in neighborhoods throughout the city. People are sick of eating in their own kitchens. As you can see, the police have blocked this off from 8 to 8 every day. And what happens is the restaurants, Scott, they apply for a permit so that they can turn these parking spaces into legal outdoor patios. Interesting. Contessa, thank you. That's Contessa Brewer reporting tonight from Manhattan. Chef Daniel Balud owns many restaurants in New York City. He's planning to begin his outdoor seating on Friday. Chef, it's good to talk to you again. Welcome back. Hello, Scott. Good to speak to you, and thank you for having me. Yeah, you as well. Um, so we've talked to you on numerous occasions throughout this crisis. Give us an update mm -hmm. on where you and your empire of restaurants stand tonight. Well, uh, as tonight, uh, we are planning to, of course, reopen our west side restaurant where there's a large terrace, Bar Boulou, uh, on the west side, and Episori Boulou in the following uh, days uh, beside that. Uh, restaurant Daniel has been doing Daniel Boulou Kitchen, uh, a takeout and delivery uh, program so far because we don't have a terrace there and it's not part of that phase. Uh, but we are also... Uh, doing a pop-up in the Berkshire at the Blantyre with Café Boulou for a couple of months. So that gave us a chance to think about the reopening as well a little bit further down. Uh, but we are definitely looking forward. New York, as you know, New York is willing to reopen and we want the New Yorkers to really, really maintain the standard of safety. Uh, our staff uh, safety is very important. We're going to make hard measure on control of temperature of uh, of course, they're going to wear uh, the, the proper gears to be protected, and we're going to try to really enforce the step of safety to the maximum. It's very important for our uh, business, and we still want to make the customer feel we are hospitality, and we want to welcome you and take good care of you and protect you. Are you heartened at all? Uh, chef, about what you see taking place in Manhattan right now with the businesses that are able to open with outdoor dining, having customers, having customers waiting to get in. Take the temperature for us of the market itself, one that looked pretty grim a few months ago. I know. And, and I think, uh, you know, our economy is very fragile. And I think we it's great to be able to reopen. It's going to be a long process, of course. We are all excited to be, re to be bringing back staff and reopen. But, uh, you know, New York is not going to have the tourists as we have uh, originally. So it's okay to have downscale the size of a restaurant 
because we're not going to have maybe the critical mass we usually have uh, at this time of the year. But uh, we, uh, we're counting on New Yorkers who really want to get out of their home, stop trying to cook at home or order online, and really enjoy the beautiful days while it's uh, is that. And then we're working very hard on the indoor uh, setting as well to make sure that people feel very safe also there. I mean, we are very hopeful, but of course we are worried. Do you know when you will be able to open your flagship restaurant again? We don't know yet. I am working on trying to create a pop-up maybe for the summer where it's about downscaling a little bit, creating a little bit of an atmosphere who is really more uh, uh, approachable and more uh, uh, not playful, but fun and maybe uh, something uh, more casual for a little while just to feel that, you know, it's, it's okay to open a fine dining. We don't have to play the fine dining right away. We can always go back to it, but we want customers to feel that we're making a force to bring them back in a proper environment at a proper price. And, of course, we are sensitive to everything who uh, an experience can bring. Danielle, we wish you well. We'll continue to follow your story. I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank All right. you. That is Chef Danielle Ballou joining us uh, once again tonight. Back to Dr. Gottlieb. This is a big test now, Dr. Gottlieb, in New York. Are we worried tonight about some of the same things we're seeing down south taking place in New York now that the city is reopening a step further? Not right now. I think that we're going to be okay through the summer in the tri-state region here because we reopened against a backdrop of much less spread. Um, the cases are dramatically down in the entire tri-state region, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. So you're opening against the backdrop of a prevalence that's very low right now. That doesn't mean that risk can't build through the summer and we won't face a situation in, in September, but that will truly be a second wave versus states in the South that reopened against the backdrop of a lot of persistent spread. They never really saw the reductions. I also think the approach is thoughtful. Trying to move as much casual dining outside as possible is going to reduce the risk of transmission. I want to ask you one quick question about, as we're talking about these spikes and the prospects now, and maybe the pressure that is now raised on therapeutic development and also vaccine development, if we're seeing these kind of spikes and we're not willing to shut things down or dial them back in any significant way, this would seemingly increase pressure to have something come to market sooner rather than later. That's right. We're, we're now more and more dependent upon a technological solution here, an imputative cure, which is a very American thing to do. We've sort of backed ourselves into a situation that we're going to be more dependent upon deploying a vaccine or a therapeutic if we can get one in the fall. I think we will have one, but I think mass distribution of a product is really going to be a 2021 event. So we need to get through one more cycle with this. All right, Dr. Gottlieb, we'll see you uh, again in, in just a few moments. We appreciate that. Up next tonight, the picture of the day. Amazing video from the racetrack. Here's what else is coming up. More pro sports teams and college teams have infected players. Is it still realistic to believe these sports are coming back anytime soon? Plus, meet a top virus hunter trying to track people who've come into contact with COVID-19 and don't know it yet. And you don't fight an enemy once he's behind your lines. you got to keep your defenses up. Moving from crime scene cleanups to stopping the virus. One man's story of adapting in a time of need. First, our country on Monday night, June 22nd, 2020.
Welcome back on day 176 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. President Trump says he supports the idea of giving Americans a second round of stimulus during the pandemic. In Miami, masks will now be worn at all times. They must. And prior to now, masks were only required in public places while indoors. And starting tomorrow, Los Angeles International Airport, LAX, will test thermal screening cameras in one of its terminals to try to identify passengers with fevers. And our picture of the day tonight, ahead of today's race in Alabama, NASCAR racers and crews standing behind Bubba Wallace, the sport's only African-American driver. It was a show of support for Wallace after a noose was found in his garage stall yesterday. That was quite a scene today. Look at that. Well, the pandemic could derail the return of college sports as more student athletes test positive for COVID-19. Patrick Risch is the head of the sports business program at Washington University in St. Louis. He's also the founder and CEO of Sports Impact. Patrick, welcome to the program. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. You see these cases growing, eight at uh, Alabama, one at Arkansas, Auburn, Baylor, a a number of players at Clemson. Are we going to be able to play college football in the fall? Boy, it's looking like a dicey proposition right now. Um, you know, obviously, there's there's a lot of time to pass between now and the end of August. But, you know, first of all, I think a lot of it is that these young people have to take more precaution. We've seen in the last few months that younger people sometimes get a little cavalier. I myself, I'm spending my summer in Los Angeles. I spend time at the UCLA track. And I got to tell you, I see a lot of athletes and non-athletes all in the 20 something range, not wearing a mask when they're doing the stairs, running laps around the track. Um, So I think that's part of it. Part of it is they're coming, Jason, from all these various places where, uh, you know, ultimately, once they're on campus, the hope is that the university athletics department can create kind of a pseudo bubble. But then, of course, when you bring all the other students back to campus, well, then this creates another concern. Certainly. Once you're in the student population, you're in the population. We're talking about tens of thousands of students, unlike a professional sports setting where you literally can be in an Orlando-like bubble, which the NBA is planning to do. Absolutely. And I think the biggest difference, obviously, between what's going on in college athletics is, you know, all these pro sports leagues, yes, they are going to lose a lot of money as it is. And even in the case of baseball, which everyone is frustrated with right now, if they canceled their season, there would be a lot of money lost. But they'll be able to rebound, whereas college sports, they are so dependent on football. I estimated a few weeks ago that just the Power Five conferences, which is roughly 65 schools, you're looking at potentially $4 billion in revenues lost in college football if you don't have a season. And there's so much pressure for them to figure out a way to make it happen because football helps finance such a large percentage of the rest of the athletics department. We're seeing conferences already, uh, not the Power Five conferences, but smaller Division One conferences like the MAC, like the Mountain West. They're canceling sports teams. They're canceling postseason tournaments and non-revenue sports years out just to offset the losses of this year. You think some non-revenue sports will disappear altogether if there is no college football, which you said contributes maybe four uh, billion dollars in terms of the of the power five. But we're also talking about university budgets more broadly that are impacted by the draw of college football at some schools. Absolutely. What we are seeing right now, 
across all of Division I sports is we are seeing furloughs. We're seeing top administrators in the athletics department taking pay cuts. We're seeing this at the university level as well. At my university, which is just a Division Three school, the chancellor, several top-level executives taking pay cuts. So we're seeing that. I haven't seen just yet Power 5 schools uh, 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 cutting sports teams. And I don't think the non-revenue sports at these smaller Division I conferences are going to totally disappear. But I, you know, we're going to see more and more programs cutting teams, cutting postseason tournaments, cutting the number of traveling, right, trying to be more geographically conscious just to lower their cost of doing business. The other issue is some of these football programs are planning on having fans in the stands, which complicates matters uh, much further, obviously. Let me get a quick comment from you, if I could, um, Patrick, before I let you go on professional sports. Do you think the leagues are being too ambitious in trying to get back to business, so to speak, in the fall? I don't think they're being too ambitious. Look, if you're going to try to move forward, you have to have a plan. You, you can't just wait until it's time to come back and then craft the plan last minute. So my short answer is I don't think they're being overly cavalier, but I do hope that when push comes to shove, if we have, we've seen uh, obviously some of the baseball teams have shut down their training camps because of recent outbreaks. Um, we are seeing more activity in Florida where this bubble in Orlando is supposed to be. And I think the biggest one is pro football. Can they push the season back? Will they have fans? I hope that they all use common sense. They are not under as much pressure financially, quite frankly, than the college athletic program. So, no, I don't think they're being too aggressive, but let's hope they show common sense in the fall. As we are learning this evening, right before we came on the air, as a matter of fact, Trevor Ariza, NBA player, saying he is opting out uh, of going to Orlando. Interesting to see if others follow. Patrick, it's good to talk to you tonight. Thanks for being here. Thank you. All right, that's Patrick Risch joining us. Back to Dr. Gottlieb. This is complicated, Dr. Gottlieb. When you start talking about college sports, if you were advising some of these Power Five conferences, the big ones, the SEC uh, and, and the like, what would you tell the commissioners and how to run this? Well, look, I've had discussions with the professional teams. I'm not doing any work with them, but I've had some informal discussions with them to try to provide some advice to them. I think that they can restart professional sports because they have – resources to create a bubble around the players, and they can do more to control activity off the field and the risk of the, to the players off the field. I think for the college sports, it's, it's very different. I think it's going to be much more difficult for them to restart um, their play, in part because they don't have the resources that the professional teams have to do the kind of aggressive testing and oversight, and in part because it's going to be much more difficult for them to c- control risk off the field and what comes into the club room. So I think it's a, it's a more difficult set of issues that they need to grapple with. And you know, the other thing with um, doing this in Florida right now with the professional teams, it's going to be hard for them to have play down there, even if they can create a bubble around their players against the backdrop of an epidemic in that state. And so that may have to get rethought as the weeks progress if Florida can't get control of, uh, of their epidemic right now. Let's run through a few tweets, if we could. Our first one tonight from Vic asking you, we have a friend who just got admitted to the ICU what new methods for treating with new methods for treating the virus, remdesivir, et cetera, are we starting to see improved recovery rates compared to a few months ago? We, we aren't yet, in part because a lot of these innovations are too new, but we will and we should. And so anyone being admitted to the ICU right now with COVID can expect a higher odds of a good outcome with drugs like remdesivir, the use of steroids and better medical techniques like how they're oxygenating patients. And so medical care is improving quite a bit. 
Next question. How do you feel about the president's comments over the weekend regarding cases and also testing? Of course, alluding to the president Trump's comments at the rally about slowing down the, the testing. What's your reaction to that? Well, look, I think the White House has already said it was said tongue in cheek. The reality is there is not much that the White House can do to slow down testing. Testing is being handled by the states and short of not approving new testing platforms, there's not anything they can do to really affect that. They can support it. But most of the advances in testing and the expansion of testing is being state administered with some federal uh, support. We are doing a good job testing um, people. It doesn't explain all the increases we're seeing in the South. But we have done a good job turning that around. Lastly, what if we get a vaccine and then the virus mutates? What will that mean? Will we have to develop a new vaccine? Explain this for us. Well, we will be developing new vaccines. The first generation of vaccines we're going to use, and then we're going to develop better vaccines after that. This first generation of vaccines won't be fully optimized in terms of providing long-term immunity. But the part of the vaccine that provides the immunity is unlikely to mutate rapidly, like within the span of a season, like we see with the flu vaccine. So you might need to re-engineer that every year or two or three years as the virus drifts. But this virus itself doesn't undergo as rapid mutation as flu, for example. Oh, interesting. Uh, A lot of questions, a lot of good answers. Dr. Gottlieb, appreciate it, as always. That's Dr. Gottlieb joining us once again tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night. A lot more ahead tonight on this CNBC special report. New numbers show tracing is a lot harder than many believe. See why even in New York City, where they hired thousands of coronavirus detectives, it's so difficult. Strictly almost 100% disinfection of buildings. Plus, shifting from the crime scene to the virus scene. We're back in two minutes. situation you've got an invisible killer from crime cleaner to virus killer this company's services are in real demand plus one virus hunter's plan to keep new york's numbers going down when cities and states across the nation see major spikes this cnbc special report continues once again here's scott wapner We're back in New York City hiring 3,000 contact tracers. Their goal, to track the virus and anyone who's come in contact with it. But a recent report says it's not working. Jackie Bray is deputy director of NYC Test and Trace Corps. Jackie, welcome. Nice to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm wondering if if you can set this straight for us. There were reports in The New York Times that said only 35 percent of residents who tested positive uh, were contacted. Then there was a number that suggested a much higher percentage Mm -hmm. was set the record straight for us tonight, if you could. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. So in New York City, we have thousands of people whose sole job it is to find anyone who tests positive for COVID-19 and have a conversation with them really about three things. One, how they keep themselves safe. Two, how they, uh, how they keep their loved ones safe. And, and three, who they've come into close contact with over the course of their illness. Uh, that team that we have in place uh, has reached 97% of all of, the con- of all the cases that we have phone numbers for. Next week, we're launching a program to go into communities and knock on people's doors for the folks that we don't have phone numbers for. Um, And of the people that we've interviewed, 74% of them have given us names of close contacts of theirs. 
And I think that those numbers really show that the program is working. Obviously, we're about three weeks old, so we think we'll get even better than we've been. Uh, but I think that those numbers show that the program is working, that New Yorkers trust us, and that New Yorkers understand that in order to go from defense to offense and really box this virus in, we're going to have to work together. We're going to have to share information. We're going to have to take the steps that we have to take to keep each other safe. Trust is the most important word that, yeah. that you just used. And you're confident that there's enough trust of a government, so to speak, agency running a program like this, tracing people and tracking people and asking them for their personal information? Yeah, you know, we, you know, New Yorkers went through the last 110 days, 100 days together. And I think, in fact, what we saw was a tremendous amount of civil solidarity. We really banded together, did what we needed to do to keep the most vulnerable of us um, as safe as we could in the worst of it. And now that we're coming out of that, our message to New Yorkers is really clear. Go get tested. We want every New Yorker to get tested. We went, when we started this program, we were testing about 10,000 people a day. Right now, we've tested over 30,000 people. Some days in the previous weeks, we're averaging about 22, 23,000 people a day. That's climbing. Uh, New Yorkers are doing what they have to do to keep each other safe. Part of that's answering the phone, and more and more people are picking up for us. So how many more people do you need to actually do the contact tracing, and what are you paying them? So we pay um, between $57,000 and $65,000 a year. Uh, the people become employees of health, the Health and Hospitals um, Corporation, which is the public hospital system here in New York City. It's the largest public hospital system in the country. Um, and the, right now, we are, we're only hiring another 100 or so people. We, we're, we really built the team. I think that will change as we move forward, but we feel pretty good about where we are in terms of staffing. The other thing we did that we're really proud of is um, we, we very explicitly hired people from the communities that were most impacted in New York. Uh, we went and we made sure that community-based organizations in the neighborhoods most impacted have the opportunity to send us resumes and send us people. And over 50% of our staff now are from the most impacted zip codes. Um, and what that does is it allows us to, you, you said trust, it allows us to build trust um, and work with empathy and cultural sensitivity from the get-go. We will be watching. Jackie, thank you. Best of luck Thanks to you. Thanks so much. All right, that's Jackie Bray with us tonight. And tonight as well, the owner of a crime scene cleanup business in New York City who completely reinvented his company when the pandemic began. Instead of laying off employees, he is now hiring. Andrea Day has tonight's Adapt, Shift, Succeed story. This team is gearing up to fight a deadly enemy they can't see. It's a dramatic shift from what they used to do. She's actually taping her glove to her suit to keep a seal. Before the pandemic hit, Doug Borushin and his employees cleaned up crime scenes. Most so horrific we can't show you here. Typically in a crime scene, you're staring right at what it is that you need to clean. In this situation, you've got an invisible killer. Right now, they're doing battle inside a major law office in New York City. COVID-19 has completely transformed his business. I had to shift immediately from crime scene and trauma scene, eradication and remediation, to strictly almost 100% disinfection of buildings, universities, theaters, arenas, you name it. It just exploded beyond any of our expectations. Compared to our 2019 receipts, all of our receipts for the year, we've actually doubled that in the last six weeks. 
And this is still going. If I look tired, it's because I am. It's because we're working pretty much 24-7. New York is getting ready to reopen. Nobody quite knows when that's going to be. So they're starting to call us already and saying, hey, look, we're going to need disinfection before we go into our offices. We have to show our employees that we did something to protect them. He says the key to his success is always staying one step ahead. A real saving grace during this whole pandemic is that we saw it coming in January and we were smart enough to gear up and stock up on our supplies and our disinfectant. Without doing that, we would have floundered. We would not have been able to get our hands on the supplies we needed. And there's no way we'd have been able to address as many jobs as we did. I think the new normal in the future for this is going to be proactivity. In other words, you don't fight an enemy once he's behind your lines. You've got to keep your defenses up. For CNBC, I'm Andrea Day. And there is a lot more ahead tonight. Coming up, a PPE entrepreneur. He's putting it all in vending machines. Are customers buying? That's straight ahead. First, pictures from our world on the 176th day of the coronavirus crisis. The Kramer COVID-19 Index, up as stocks rally on Wall Street. Today's leading components, BioNTech, Ivango Health, Square, Chipotle, Viva Systems. Watch Mad Money, 6 p.m. Eastern. Prepango is a California-based vending machine manufacturer now pivoting from snacks and SIM cards to personal protective equipment like masks and hand sanitizer. They're now set up in 30 airports across the country. Marcos Modiano is the CEO of Prepango, joins us now. Marcos, welcome. Hi, Scott. Nice to be here. Brilliant idea. Um, it really is. How do you go, though, from cupcakes and cookies to PPE? <laughs> well, um, I'm about to board a flight going uh, over to Denver to an airport show as it happens, and I'm not feeling protected. I'm, I'm feeling quite insecure about being at the airport and knowing, watching the news. This is back in March. Um, and that's where I thought the, that's where I got the idea. We could quickly pivot um, and start, you know, bringing some security back to travel, you know, for, for, for general passengers to have protection equipment. This was early in March, really before we knew what was going to happen. Uh, but that's when we started thinking about it. And we ended up deploying the first concept in Las Vegas, McCarran back in, uh, in, in early May. Wow. Literally from walking through the airport, you get this idea. And then after McCarran in, in Las Vegas, how many other airports call? Well, we got a lot of calls right now. We're in this active deployment uh, stage. We, we, we've set up over uh, 12 airports right now. Uh, we, we did um, five airports in three days last week. So, so we've been quite busy here trying to get everybody set up. We're re re really wanting to, um, you know, to do this for the airports. We've been an, you know, an airport business originally, and it's obviously also throwing us in, in other directions uh, simultaneously. Yeah. Where do you get the PPE from? Well, we've had many suppliers uh, here in the U.S., many importers of, of, of supply as well. And really, after getting some, some attention, we got some press. Uh, we had even more suppliers reach to us. So right now, there's an abundance of supply. 
from what I've seen at least uh, for, you know, for all the PPE categories. What about the prices you're having to pay? We heard a lot about that at the early stages of this crisis. Obviously yes. hard to find. What are you finding yourself now? And how about passing that on to the customer who happens to be walking through the airport feeling like you did months ago? Of course. Yeah. At the beginning, you know, April, May timeframe, it was very hard to, to, to source and the prices were up. Now we're seeing prices come down as, you know, steadily as the market catches up and there's more supply. Um, we, you know, we, for, for this concept, we've really tried to, you know, benchmark our pricing with street pricing of, uh, you know, a, a, it's a requirement as well for the airport. So, so you know, wherever the market goes, we'll go with it. Um, and, and that, you know, that so far, that's, that's been all right for us. You got a phone call as well, as I understand it, from the Blazers of the NBA. Is, is that right? And do you see this now as something you'll have expanded beyond airports? I'm thinking shopping malls, uh, arenas, if the Blazers called and who knows where else? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we, we've had convention centers, we have universities, arenas. Um, I think anywhere where, you know, it, you know, Hopefully, you know, the, the, the disease gets, uh, the virus gets dealt with soon. Um, and that's what we all really want. However, e even after that happens, and, and I, I think people will want to feel protected if, if they're going to be close, in close proximity. And, um, and, and I think the concept will make sense for, for a while. And then we'll have to transition onto the next thing. We don't want to be a, just a PP company uh, forever. We, we hope that doesn't stick around too long. Cupcakes and cookies sometime in the future. Or is that done now? We're doing cupcakes. We have uh, a great partnership with Sprinkles Cupcakes, and, and, and we're doing cookie, though, as well. So, so you know, we, we played in the edibles with, with stuff that we like um, and, and also very other, you know, other cool categories in electronics, uh, cosmetics, uh, pharmacy, and, and, and a few more concepts. So we really tried to uh, develop this niche uh, and, and, and specialty retail uh, format into vending and, and, and deploy it into, you know, airports and, and other transportation centers. Love your story. I appreciate you sharing it with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks right. for having me. We'll talk to you soon. Marcos Modiano, Prepengo. He's the founder and the CEO. Each night we shine a spotlight on American restaurants operating through the crisis. Tonight's list is next. The five restaurants in our nightly shout out to those operating in the face of the crisis. The Sideways Sports Lounge in Westminster, Colorado. Wilds Cafe, Bonita Springs, Florida. Benares in New York City. Catfish Lane in Portland, Oregon. And Tank's Pizza in San Antonio, Texas. We appreciate everything you're doing. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner CNBC with the hashtag thanks for the grub with the name and town of your favorite restaurant. Send us a picture as well. Try and get it on TV. On day 176 of the coronavirus crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. Gilead will begin human trials in August for an inhaled version of its antiviral drug, remdesivir. The White House says President Trump was joking when he said he asked his administration to slow down testing. The Dow rising 153 points today. The Nasdaq closing at a new high. And futures right now are higher across the board. You can go to CNBC.com for up-to-the-minute information on the markets and the virus all night long. We're back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange. I'll see you at noon, of course, on the Halftime Report, then 7 p.m. for Markets in Turmoil. For all of us at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Please stay safe. Shark Tank is next.